If you look at Greta Thunberg's profile on Twitter, it says, Climate and environmental activist with Asperger's, born at 375 ppm. It was that 375 ppm parts per million that caught my eye. I found out it refers to carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere, so I checked what it is today. Carbon dioxide levels are now higher, around 420 parts per million. But when I was born, reported data shows that CO2 levels were at 314 parts per million. That's an increase of almost 100 parts per million over my lifetime. How this increase has affected our climate is becoming ever clearer. But how does it affect human health? Outside the people like cars are still running When inside it's safe to deny that it's coming The TV's turned up so the winds are just humming To the sound of the heat rising This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. Regular listeners will know this podcast is all about conversations, not just between me, our correspondents and experts, but between them as well. Today, we're exploring the relationship between climate change and human health. So joining me in conversation are... Hello. My name is David Pynchon. I'm an honorary professor of health and sustainable development at the University of Exeter. But my last job was as the founder director of the NHS and Public Health England Sustainable Development Unit. Hi, I'm Marina Romanello and I'm the executive director for the Lancet Countdown, where I lead the collaboration to track progress on health and climate change. And before that, I was a medical research scientist, partly at the University of Cambridge, partly at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Hello, I'm Maria Kohut, and I'm the feature editor at Medical News Today. Marina, can you just give us a really short summary on how greenhouse gases have led to climate change? So greenhouse gases that have been accumulating in the atmosphere due to human activity are gases like carbon dioxide, methane, and what these gases do is basically absorb the heat and they don't allow heat that comes from the sun into the earth be reflected back into space. So what happens is that as heat from the sun reaches the earth, they act like a blanket, they trap the heat inside uh, the earth's atmosphere, and that makes the temperatures go up. And that is part of what climate change is because that generates cascading effects in terms of increasing temperatures of the water that alters hydrological cycles and generates other impacts on the climate, on on our environment, that add to the whole combo that we call climate change. Thank you. So climate change is not all about heat, but it's one of the most obvious ways in which we directly see the impact on people's health. So let's start there. What experiences have you personally had with extreme heat or extreme weather? David, shall I start with you? I guess the most personal thing that's happened to me is sharing the experience of others. And I think the first time this happened was when a colleague of mine during one of the uh, continental heat waves in France, actually, some years ago now, went into one of the cathedrals. I think it was the cathedral in Toulouse, which for hundreds and hundreds of years has been a 
a great place to go in a heat wave because it's always cool. But in this heat wave, it became like an oven. And it was unbearable for them. And this was to them a really big wake-up call that things are changing. When you hear an anecdote like getting very hot in a very ancient cathedral that's never, ever, ever been warm, that is scary. Marina, what about you? Well, I had a very recent, quite extreme experience with, with a heat wave in Argentina, where I'm from, over the summer, this summer that is January here. There was a record heat wave in Argentina, particularly in Buenos Aires. And I was here at the time, I was trying to work and I was finding it absolutely impossible to concentrate. The city of Buenos Aires has very, very little green space, is a city with very tall buildings, with a lot of reflective surfaces, and it got absolutely boiling hot. One particular friend of mine was eight months pregnant, and she and her husband lived in a building in the city centre in the middle of Buenos Aires. The temperature in their apartment reached 50 degrees because it's a glass apartment. And the thing is, because we rely on air conditioning, the energy system collapsed. The infrastructure is also quite weak. So what happened is that at the same time that we were having this excruciating heat wave, we also had a blackout. And what that meant is that you couldn't cool down indoor environments. In tall buildings like my friend, you could not have access to water because that depends on an electric pump. So they were locked into this apartment with no water, 50 degrees, no cooling. She eventually went down and stayed in the car the whole day with the air conditioning in the car on because she just couldn't cope with her pregnancy. I eventually went, picked her up and brought her home because it was a lot cooler here. I live in the suburbs, but yeah, it's pretty horrendous. Well, that's quite a story. That is very scary what you just recounted. So scary. I can't imagine, you know, being pregnant and being in that situation. So what's happening in our bodies when we're exposed to such extremes of heat? Our bodies are quite good, actually, at adapting to different temperature changes, but we're much better physiologically at warming ourselves up in a cold place than cooling ourselves down in a hot place. I mean, well, there are mechanisms for cooling ourselves down, and, and perspiration is the most obvious one because we perspire, our skin gets wet, it evaporates, that extracts heat from our skin. But actually, there's a huge limit to that. There's only a certain few hours over a threshold, and, and you begin to heat up dangerously, and that, that is a, a medical emergency, essentially. So we just simply cannot cool our bodies down. And, and I think when you hear temperatures going above 45 degrees, we know this has a terrible effect on our ability to function as human beings physiologically. And that is really, really worrying because very few of us have that experience, which ultimately means we can sleepwalk into the nightmare of becoming fatally ill in a very, very hot place. Marina, you cover that in the last Lancet Commission report on climate change and health. What did you want to add? Okay, I agree with David. I think there's a lot of elements to extreme heat exposure. But when you have such extreme temperature increases, then your body does not have as much time to adjust to such high temperatures. And that particularly affects people that don't have good thermal perception, so they don't realize about the temperature change that they're experiencing, like very small babies under one year of age 
or the elderly of people without other underlying health conditions. So it's them that are the most acutely at risk from that overheating that can happen quite suddenly and is absolutely lethal. So we've been talking about the acute heat stress. What actually happens if we're exposed to extremes of heat and variability over long periods of time? The evidence of the health impact of chronic exposure to extreme heat or to acute extreme heat is not so robust, but we know that, for example, there's a link between heat exposure and kidney disease, particularly in outdoor workers, in people working in the fields. And there's also some evidence of neurological disease being exacerbated by extreme heat exposure, like, for example, uh, people that have seizures or other neurological problems and the extreme heat, there's very good clinical evidence how that gets exacerbated. Maria? There was the systematic review that came out last December, I think, that looked exactly what we were saying about the neurological symptoms being exacerbated by global heating. And they were looking at Alzheimer's and they were looking at Parkinson's disease and they were looking at multiple sclerosis, but also stuff like migraine. And essentially, they concluded that, yes, extreme heating is associated with the worsening of symptoms and that it does end up with more people ending up in hospital and higher mortality rates as well from these conditions, which I found really scary. And very recently, we covered a study that appeared actually earlier this month that looked at hyponatremia, which is extremely low, abnormally low sodium, that is salt levels, that ended up in more people being hospitalized with hyponatremia. And they were linking this to increases in temperature. And the authors were explaining this by saying that you could end up having much lower sodium levels in your system through sweat. If you sweat out too much, you lose salt essentially, or by drinking too much water, again, to try and combat the heat. So I again, that's not something that I would have thought about. It's not something that I would have considered, but it's a very clear, I think, direct effect of just exposure to extreme heat. Marina, have you come across that? Um, on the topic of chronic or repeated exposure to extreme heat, that's a very interesting area. I have been looking a bit into that and trying to understand as the world warms and as we're seeing more frequent extreme heat events, what that adds up to and what the accumulative effects might be. And there's surprisingly little evidence in the literature of that added impact of over and over and over being exposed to these temperatures. We have some capacity to adapt, and particularly uh, you would see, for example, in tropical areas, people cope much more with the heat than they do in London. London collapses with heat uh, because obviously people's physiology is not adapted, people's behavior is not adapted, and our built environment isn't adapted either. So there are some, there's some flexibility for adaptation to constant high temperatures, obviously, until some point. But what is quite interesting is the repeated exposure to extreme heat. And we are not really sure what that does. Another area that we've come across is that immune responses seem to vary when people are exposed to uh, variability. Maria, can you start us off on that? I can. So something that I've come across is this idea that in humans, exposure to extreme weather variables will weaken the immune system. But there have also been some animal studies 
There was something in mice, I think, in 2019, where they said that mice who had been exposed to extreme heat had a poor response when they came into contact with an influenza virus. And then there was a more recent study where they looked at birds and they said that with with climate change, they, they had adapted their immune systems to their specific environment. But as that environment is shifting, they're no longer able to respond to pathogens in the same way. But it seems very interesting that our immune systems seem to be very much responsive to these changes in temperature. So I don't know what you've observed from your research or what you've come across and what sort of explanations, if any, you might have around why we seem to be so responsive to changes in temperature. On that aspect of immune responses, I also remember that study that Maria mentioned. There's also some evidence in animal models mostly of an inflammatory response as a result to extreme heat exposure, which is quite interesting because you have increased in kind of the typical inflammatory markers like interleukin-6, interleukin-1, TNF-alpha, and all of those kind of package of, of inflammation. I have not seen much what that does in terms of infectious disease propensity, but most of all, I haven't seen what that does or, or any robust studies that show what that chronic inflammatory response might mean for our overall health, because we know that that inflammatory reaction does have adverse impacts. And there's some elements of that that has been a bit more studied that does translate to uh, digestive health, for example. So extreme heat exposure, increasing the permeability of the digestive barriers and therefore uh, increasing the susceptibility also for infections through the digestive system and chronic inflammation also in the digestive system. But again, quite a gap there in terms of understanding what our immune system does and how it responds to that extreme heat exposure. At least I haven't come across anything that is a bit more definitive than that. David, have you come across that? Just listening to Maria Marina, we're quite rightly, and it's important to look at the effect of heat on individual physiology. But at some stage, one ought to add what we know about that issue to the equally important issue of how heat affects communities and societies. But what is staggering, and I will take you back, Hilary, to our conversation earlier about heat waves, is that it's fascinating in the literature to look at the effect of heat waves in places like Paris or Chicago in the last part of the last century, in the early part of this century, and how things broke down very badly. And that is an equally important and equally scary thing that we've observed in human systems of interaction, collective behavior, cooperation, broke down completely. So I I think what we're talking about today, which is incredibly important, which is the effect of heat on human individual physiology, Combine that with how it affects societies and communities and systems which we have created for ourselves is a is a very toxic mix. I think David touched on something that is really important and we I don't think we have addressed enough. That has to do with the impact of heat exposure on mental health and on collective violence. There's very good evidence of how it exacerbates interpersonal violence and undermines mental health with increased risk suicides and other uh, mental health adverse outcomes, which are as important 
as the physical effects that we see and have very profound impacts on the whole of the, the social matrix as well. Let's have a look at what these extremes of weather are doing, what the variability of climate change is doing to fragile ecosystems, and then hence what's happening for our food and water supply and how that's impacting directly on health. Marina, can you pick that one up? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the things that we get more worried about when we think about climate change is precisely food and water insecurity, and especially because the most vulnerable in the world are at such increased level of risk from climate change that adds on top of their already pretty frail food and water systems. And when you look at the different impacts of climate change on the natural systems that sustain health, probably our agricultural and water systems are the ones that are at, at most risk. We're seeing, on the one hand, change precipitation patterns with increased floodings, increased droughts in different areas. We're also seeing extreme weather events that also lead to crop failure and all of that undermining not only crop productivity, but also crop supply chains and food supply chains. And on the other hand, with the extreme heat exposure, we're already seeing that that starts undermining crop productivity directly as well by changing the maturation times of different crops. So that also is posing limits on our food productivity. And that is particularly visible in low-middle-income countries where you have more frail food systems, when you have more dependence on natural resources, uh, you don't have so much access to technologies in the agricultural sector. And on the other side, we're also seeing that because climate change generates economic losses, it undermines labor capacity, agricultural workers being particularly exposed. You have a bit of a combo there where also people's capacity to purchase food is also being undermined by the climate hazards. So we're seeing very overlapping multidimensional impacts of climate change on food systems and food security that is pretty concerning. Can I move us on now to just another big area where climate change is impacting on health? And I don't think it's as obvious to most people why this might be happening, and that would be in the area of infectious diseases. So, David, how might climate change be impacting on how infectious diseases change and spread? One of the um, most cited examples of how infectious diseases are changing are in so-called arthropod-borne diseases. These are diseases that are spread by insects and mosquitoes traditionally. And of course, a lot of these insects are exquisitely sensitive to which ecosystems they can survive in. So for instance, as it gets warmer in certain countries, many countries, a lot of these insects will survive there. And it's a, it's a very interesting and, and fascinating global issue because often we find that the cures to certain diseases, and malaria is a good example, has been painfully slow, not only because malaria and its parasites are very clever at getting around everything we put in their way, but they're traditionally a what we call a disease of the global south, i.e. the global poor. So, David, I have to ask, do you think we're going to see malaria in more industrialised countries? My understanding is that we already are, actually, and it's not just malaria. There are other diseases that are spreading quickly around the world into, for instance, healthcare systems are just not familiar with dealing with them. So, yeah, this is already happening. Um, and I think the Lancet countdown, which Marina leads, has been you know, one of those great serial data 
exposures that's helping us spot these really important trends and changes. I think we got the title for our next report, a big serial data exposure. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, David. <laughs> Maria, you wanted to come in there. Well, I was just reflecting that a lot of the studies that I've seen in the past two, three years, we're talking about how arboviruses such as Zika and West Nile have migrated from low-income countries into Western countries, particularly the case study that I was looking at was the United States. And largely this was blamed on climate change because it affected the way that the vectors, the virus carriers were migrating and it was also affecting their life cycle and so on. There's so much to talk about, but I do want to talk about responses to this. And what should the healthcare system itself be doing to respond to climate change and health? This is such an important question. I I guess the initial response is that the health service should be ready to deal with these new diseases and increasing levels. But actually, you know, I think there's something much more important health systems could be doing. One of the things is to realise that health systems are big medico-industrial complexes and they are themselves part of the problem. First of all, health services contribute about 8% of all global health emissions. That is big in itself. But probably more important than that is that healthcare services tend to be symbolic of the societies in which they are housed. I'm speaking from the UK And the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, is almost a religion. And what the NHS does is symbolic of what society does. One reflects the other. Food is a good example. The National Health Service in the UK is the biggest buyer of food in the country. We have the capacity, theoretically, to buck the market, to develop different food systems, to normalise different food systems. And this wouldn't be done by just a big company. The NHS is staffed by... 10% of the working population of the most trusted people in the country. And so that if we treat climate change as a health issue and not just as an environmental issue, it makes it much more immediate to everybody. So should hospitals only be serving plant-based foods on their menus? I'm talking exactly in that direction of hospitals having meat-free days on Mondays and Thursdays, making that normal. I mean, there are already vegetarian hospitals around the world. So there's nothing new about having low meat in a hospital setting. And we know, going back to our discussion today about food, is that food is not just a technical issue, it's a cultural issue. You know, we probably know how to put enough calories and protein and carbohydrate and vitamins into seven and a half billion people. That is a technically solvable issue. But culturally, it is a nightmare of large scale change. And the health services around the world can be symbolic of large, not only symbolic, but can practically be part of that large scale change. I agree with, with David. I think if we are realistic about the health impacts that we're seeing of climate change, and particularly about the health opportunities of that low-carbon transition, then the health professionals and health systems have to be really at the forefront of this fight because it is a health issue. It is fundamentally a health crisis that we have in our hands. Because much of what we talk about when we talk about action climate change mitigation has to do with healthier lifestyles, with uh, reducing the burden of disease through more 
physical activity through healthier, more plant-based diets, through uh, reduced exposure to air pollution and other environmental determinants that, that, that damage our health. So by increasing that communication from the health system, by promoting healthier lifestyles, we on the one hand promote behavior shifts that determine low carbon transitions and, and facilitate those low carbon transitions. And on the other hand, we reduce the burden of disease, we reduce the pressure on the NHS, we reduce the carbon footprint that comes from the health systems, which we saw during the COVID pandemic, are absolutely on their needs, are stretched to the limit. And it's fundamental that we do shift our attention towards what we need to be doing to protect our health, to deliver those health co-benefits and to deliver uh, healthier futures as well. Maria, can I have some final thoughts from you? My final thought, I, I think, perfectly aligns with what's been said so far, which is that we have to think about climate as synonymous with health and that climate change is going to affect health status. We can't just think of it as relating to weather and nothing else as something that is an isolated phenomenon. It's something that affects every system and planetary health, which is our health in particular at the end of the day. Thank you. And then just before we finish, we started the podcast playing B.T. Walsh from Green to Red, which she describes as an environmental protest piece. And it was built on 800,000 years of our planet's data. And it charts the planet's increase in CO2 levels across those years as a song and an art piece, which has taken the data and woven it into this virtual fabric that unravels from green to red. And that was projected onto the side of the building where COP26, the United Nations' last climate change conference, was held. Did you see that? Yes, I have. It was it was very impressive. And one of the things it reminded me of was the fact that in helping each of us engage with this issue of the ecological emergency, I think it's quite clear now that it's vitally important that, that we combine what I'd call the scientific, the rational and the technical issues with the emotional, the value-laden issues. And that involves using every tool that human beings use to reflect on the world and change the world collectively. And the arts and humanities are unbelievably important in that. And so it reinforces my belief that there is something for everybody in this collective journey. There's nobody who can put their hand on their heart and says, this is not my business. It is everybody's business. So it's a wonderful thing to watch. And we all have to find the things which engage us both emotionally and rationally and combine them and help each other to have similar parallel collaborative journeys. David Pension, Marina Romanello, Maria Cahoot, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much indeed. It's been very enjoyable listening to everyone. Thank you so much, Hilary. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks so much to our guests for joining us. So take my hand, babe, and I'll walk you to school where you'll learn how to live by a new set of rules. Because we played all our cards and none left for you. Forgive us, my dear, can't you see? Is the truth that we don't want to know? Thanks also to BT Wolf for the music in today's episode. And of course, thank you for listening. 
You can read more about climate change and its health impacts in Maria's article on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. We'll be in conversation again next month with a discussion about new insights from research into anxiety and depression. I'm Dr Hilary Geit and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today. What happened to love? Is it out of date? Turn back, turn back, don't live like it's too late.